Well, next Sunday, we're going to begin uh, a new sermon series working through the book of Ruth, which I'm uh, very much looking forward to. But today, I want to share a message that I preached at a conference, and not this one this past week, but the week before, because uh, it's a message about the local church and our relationship to the culture around us. And being only the second Sunday of the new year, uh, after praying about where to go next from the pulpit as we just finished up the Gospel of Mark, I believe this sermon uh, is an important message for the church and an important reminder of who we are and what we're called to do and the effect uh, we can actually have on our city, on our community and beyond when we stay focused on both of those truths, who we are and what we're called to do. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like today. And I love, uh, if I'm being honest, I love talking about this because I love the church I do. I love the church. And when I say that, I don't mean just the, the universal body of believers worldwide, but I mean the local church, the local organized family of believers that gathers in specific communities each week and throughout the week to experience the gospel together and to share that gospel with others. I love the church. And of course, <laughs> as the pastor of a local church, I'd better feel that way uh, or we're in a lot of trouble, right? And yet, uh, if I'm being completely honest, there was a period of time in my life when I didn't love the church, especially growing up. Even though I professed to be a follower of Christ, I never considered myself to be a particularly religious person. And so I never felt like uh, I was able to really connect very well with what was happening in the local church. I kept going because I believed it was the right thing to do, even though I didn't love it. In fact, uh, there were plenty of times where I didn't even like it. Uh, and yet looking back on all of that, I realized now the reason I didn't like the church was because I didn't understand it, right? I always thought the church was so out of sync with what was going on in the world around it, especially uh, the smaller churches that I grew up in, even though they were constantly trying to keep up with what was happening in the world. The church always seemed behind the times to me in what it was focused on, which in some ways it was. But it turns out that wasn't the problem. The problem was that I didn't understand the fact that the church is not supposed to be in sync with the world around it. The goal of the church is not to be focused on what our culture is focused on. I thought the church could be doing so much more to at least try and be more attractive to the culture around it, which it could be doing. But it turns out that's not the mission of the church. We're not here to try and be the most popular show in town. I thought the church could try a lot harder to change with the times, to attempt at least to be more culturally relevant, which it could. But it turns out that's not the purpose of the church. Jesus didn't call us to constantly reinvent what we're doing in order to better reflect contemporary society. You see, I had it all wrong because I didn't understand the local church. English theologian John Stott once said, Instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status quo, the church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals, values, standards, and lifestyle. A realistic alternative to the contemporary technocracy, which is marked by bondage, materialism, self-centeredness, and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. Such a church, joyful, obedient, loving, and free, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. It is when the church evidently is the church and is living a supernatural life of love by the power of the Holy Spirit that the world will believe. That's just the opposite of how I saw the church and how a lot of people still see the church today. And so the less the church looked like the culture around it, the less I liked it and the less I wanted to be a part of it. Yet the more I tried to justify that attitude toward the local church by turning to the scriptures, the more I realized just how wrong I was because as I discovered, the church in the New Testament was unapologetically focused on the gospel, regardless of what the culture around it was focused on. It was full of people who were radically different than everyone else in society, and it was wildly unpopular to the masses, as we'll see today. In fact, the, uh, the church was nothing like what I thought it should be like. And it turns out I was not alone 
in my error. The truth is for generations now, believers have envisioned a church that is always politically, socially, and culturally current. A church that is full of people who have become adept at believing in Jesus without ever having to sacrifice one single thing in order to follow him. A church that is so irresistibly attractive aesthetically to the culture that it appeals to the masses. A church that looks absolutely nothing like the one that Jesus died for. And so honestly, how how did we get from there to here? How, How do we go from being a people who longed for the day we could claim the high honor of dying for the name of Jesus as so many of those early followers did to people who were unwilling to risk one moment of our own comfort for the name of Jesus. Where, where, where did we go wrong? Where did we veer off course? Well, it began a long time ago. In the, in the year 313 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which made it legal for a person to be a Christian for the first time since Christianity began, effectively ending almost three centuries of state-sponsored persecution of the church. And then 67 years later, largely in response to Arianism, a false doctrine that was creeping its way into the church, the new emperor Theodosius I issued the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, making Christianity the official state religion of the entire Roman Empire. And in that sweeping and truly astonishing move uh, by the government of Rome, Christianity went from being counterculture to mainstream culture. And in the centuries that followed this profound change of status, what turned out to be a cataclysmic shift for the church in the fourth century was considered by most to be the triumph of the church over the world. In retrospect, Many now consider that defining moment to actually be the triumph of the world over the church. Because for the first time in history, you could profess faith in Christ without it costing you anything, without having to change anything in your life. You could now claim to be a Christian without there having to be any real meaning or significance to that claim other than for the purpose of social acceptance because as a Christian rather than being an outcast of society for following Christ you are now simply being a responsible and patriotic citizen of Rome by claiming to be a Christian because it didn't make sense anymore if you if you wanted to be accepted by the culture it didn't make any sense to claim to be anything but a Christian and out of that came the rise of what we know today as cultural Christianity which is actually what most of us were raised in And the problem with cultural Christianity is that it breeds in its followers a fundamental misunderstanding, a misinterpretation, really, of the local church, of what the church is, how it functions in society, and what the consequences are for being a part of it. Because, uh, listen, you understand the gospel of Christ is subversive by nature. It is disruptive, which means the message of the church is subversive, which means our mission to this culture is subversive. It disrupts life as usual. It is decidedly counterculture, which means uh, it, it seems like at least that would work against our mission to go and make disciples, right? And yet, as a Bible scholar Nancy Piercy points out in her research, which I've shared more than once here before, she says it's a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. You see what she's saying? As the cost of following Christ increases for us personally, there's a corresponding increase in effectiveness in our mission to make disciples, at least historically that has been the case. She's mapped it out. Well, why is that? Because those who profess to follow Christ when they have nothing to lose by saying it don't have to mean it if they don't want to. Nothing has to necessarily change in their lives when at the same time the people who profess Christ when everything they hold dear is at stake for simply uttering those words Well, now we're talking about people who value their relationship with Jesus more than everything they stand to lose because of that 
relationship, even their own lives, which is not which is not only the antithesis of the cultural Christianity that we were raised in, but it is also intensely attractive to those who are desperately searching for a deeper truth, a greater hope, something that transcends the, uh, the paper-thin promises of this world, something that only the gospel can provide. And here's the point. Once you take hold of that message, the true message of the gospel, not, not one that not one that promises material prosperity, but one that promises personal suffering. Not one that grants all of your deepest desires, but one that requires profound sacrifice. Not one that makes you blend in with this world, but one that sets you undeniably apart from every other creed and culture of this world. When you take hold of that gospel, the one that Jesus lived and taught, and then gather with others who have renounced cultural Christianity to instead pursue that true gospel of Christ, that is when the local church begins to transform entire towns and cities and regions and cultures. It's exactly what being a part of the early church looked like and it is what being a part of the church today is supposed to look like which is the opposite of what I thought for a long time and yet once I finally embraced Christ's design for the church embedded in the culture I'm telling you everything changed for me and out of that grew a great love for the local church because for the first time I understood what it really was and what life looks like when you're a part of it which is what we're going to see in our story today and what is one of the clearest representations in Scripture of what happens when the local church is truly focused on the gospel, the effect that focus has on the culture around it and what life looks like for the people who are a part of it. And, and listen, if you can get a hold of this, the reality of what the church is, how it's supposed to function in a culture that doesn't understand it, and how your life will change when you're a part of it. I'm telling you, you will fall in love with the church, the local church, in a way that will not only transform you, but it will transform the culture around you as well. So if you brought your Bible with you, you can turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. We'll put it up on the screen as well. I'm just going to give you a bit of backstory just before we read. At this point in his missionary journey, the Apostle Paul has come to the city of Ephesus, one of the five largest cities in all of the Roman Empire at the time in the capital of the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. It had one of the three largest libraries in the ancient world, boasted a, a magnificent temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, in addition to the synagogue, there were great halls or schools where people would gather for lectures and teachings throughout the day. Uh, hands down, Ephesus was the intellectual epicenter of all of Asia and one of its greatest cities for travel and commerce as well. And so Paul goes there and he plants a church with 12 people. I love that because we planted this church with 12 people. Uh, Paul goes there to Ephesus. He plants a church with 12 people in the Hall of Tyrannus or the School of Tyrannus, as some translations have it, where Luke tells us that they met daily according to verses 9 and 10. And through the ministry of that one local church, the city of Ephesus and really the entire region is completely transformed. And yet it's not an easy uh, transformation as we'll see. From almost the moment the church begins its ministry in Ephesus, it is met with increasing resistance and hostility by the culture around it and an increasing effectiveness in changing lives by the power of the gospel at the same time. So let's pick the story up as Paul arrives at Ephesus and immediately he begins preaching the gospel. We'll start with verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul goes to Ephesus. He begins preaching the gospel in the one place that makes the most sense to preach the gospel, the local synagogue. Uh, right? Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee, 
telling the story about how the Jewish Messiah was sent to the earth by the Hebrew God to save his people. There was nowhere else in all of Ephesus at that moment in time more fitting for Paul to share the gospel than in the local synagogue. And yet even in the synagogue, the gospel is met with tremendous resistance to the point that Paul feels he has to leave. So he moves the church to a local school where he spends the next two years preaching the gospel every day. Now there's a codex an ancient manuscript called the Codex Beza. It was written in the 5th century in both Greek and Latin, and it contains most of the four Gospels and Acts and uh, a small portion of 3rd John. And it explains that in the time period of these events uh, in Acts, when this was happening, that men would break from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. during the hottest part of the day, and that's when they took to leisure or hobbies, and many of them would rest during that time. But that was also when many of them would go to the local lecture hall or the local school, such as the Hall of Tyrannus, and take part in these great discussions and debate. And so Paul uses the space and time made available to him by the city of Ephesus and the local Ephesian culture to plant his church and preach the gospel. And after two solid years of proclaiming the gospel daily, the message was spreading throughout all of Asia. Listen, because of one local church. And as we'll see in a minute, it's not just that the message is spreading, it's the profound effect that this one local church spreading that message is having on an entire city and beyond because of its singular focus on the gospel. There isn't any real mention of uh, special programs or outreach efforts. We don't see anything about how they marketed themselves to the community to get the word out. And even though there was ministry happening that was meeting the physical and emotional needs of many outside the churches, we'll see that wasn't the focus of this local church. In fact, every meaningful thing that happened as a result of that one local church in Ephesus, the good things and, and uh, some very difficult things as well, all of it was a direct result of the gospel being preached clearly and consistently, nothing more and nothing less, because the church was singularly focused on the gospel, which is exactly what the church is supposed to be singularly focused on today, which seems like a really obvious thing to say to a room full of Christians. And yet the gospel, listen, historically, the gospel has not been one of the hallmarks of cultural Christianity. Political involvement, social activism, personal testimonies, cultural awareness, acts of compassion, all very good things, and yet they are not the gospel. Even your personal testimony, we talked about a couple of weeks ago about what God has done in your life that's good, and you should definitely share it. But you understand your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is your story. The gospel is his story. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, what was to be the singular focus of the church, the first thing he said was go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, 15. You understand the way we make disciples is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we evangelize is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we show compassion is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we share the love of Christ is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we engage the culture is by proclaiming the gospel. Well, do we not feed the hungry? Clothe the naked, heal the sick, comfort the hurting. Yes, of course we do. But listen, all of that is nothing more than a byproduct. Yes, it's a wonderful byproduct, but nonetheless, a byproduct of the proclamation of the gospel. You see, if all of our good works are not accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel, then all we're doing is offering temporary solutions to an eternal problem. The gospel must be the singular and central focus of the church if our social justice and acts of compassion and political involvement and all the rest is to have any lasting meaning at all. Yes, compassion is one of the foundational moorings of the Christian faith. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27, the apostle Paul wrote, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Compassion has always been one of the hallmarks of Christianity and therefore of the church as well. At least it, it certainly should be. However, in the age of cultural Christianity, we've come to confuse the compassion of Christ with a compassion for the feelings of those who are lost, those who may be offended by hearing the gospel. And I'm telling you, that kind of misguided compassion is extremely dangerous for this world because that is the kind of compassion that has kept scores of Christians from sharing their faith in Christ openly with others who are lost. In fact, I would say compassion has probably kept more people out of heaven than hate. And I know that sounds harsh because it is harsh, but it's also the truth. You see, Jesus, uh, Jesus never made excuses or apologies for speaking the truth, and neither should we. And yet at the same time, he met people's deepest needs in ways that no one else would, and so should we. As the church, the body of Christ, we're supposed to be the harbingers of truth and the embodiment of love to a culture that doesn't understand the real meaning of either. So it's incumbent upon us to share the truth of Christ and to show the love of Christ to a world that is literally dying without ever experiencing either one of those. Make no mistake, we must do both. We must share the truth and show love because that's exactly what Jesus did. And I, and I know, of course, uh, right? Who doesn't agree with that? We all agree with that. But I also think there's this deep misunderstanding in the modern church today about what it looks like to share the gospel because we've confused sharing truth and showing love with being nice. Now, listen, as Christians, uh, you know, for that matter, as human beings, we should be nice people, compassionate people, absolutely. There's nothing worse than someone who professes to be a Christ follower and treats other people unkindly. In fact, uh, some of the most unkind people I've known in my entire life claim to be Christians. That ought not be. But look, at the same time, being nice is not always synonymous with sharing truth and showing love. The fact is, Jesus wasn't always Nice to people, right? During the Passover in John chapter 2, we talked about this. He made a whip of cords, went into the temple and drove the money changers out, flipped over the tables and poured out their coins while harshly rebuking them. That wasn't very nice, Jesus. In Matthew 16, 23, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is Peter, one of the inner circle of his closest disciples. One of the men closest to him on earth who'd given up everything to follow Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. That wasn't a very nice thing to say to Peter. His interaction with Thomas after the resurrection in John 20, 27 through 29, who doubted Jesus was alive. I'm telling you, read it. That interaction with Thomas wasn't nice at all. In fact, Mark 16, 14, when you'd think the disciples and Jesus would be celebrating the resurrection, Jesus was rebuking all of them for their unbelief. He certainly wasn't being nice. Yet every single time that Jesus was not nice to someone, it was because in that very moment, being nice would have hindered him from sharing truth or showing love, real love, which is the benchmark for the Christian when it comes to being nice or when considering the feelings of other people, okay? As followers of Christ, we should always strive to be kind, compassionate, nice people unless being nice being considerate of others' feelings means not sharing truth or showing real love because we're afraid it might offend them. You see, in that moment, feelings take a back seat to truth and love. I've shared this analogy with you at least once before. If I'm teaching my sons how to use a chainsaw, any of you who use a chainsaw know there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Running that saw the wrong way can cost you your life. So if I see them using that saw in the wrong way, in that moment, the very last thing on my mind is their feelings. You understand? I, I couldn't care less about their feelings when their lives are at stake. And so you'd better believe if they do something wrong with that chainsaw, I'm going to tell them the truth with the sense of urgency, no matter how much it might hurt their feelings. Not because I'm trying to be offensive, 
but because I love them and I want them to live. What kind of father would I be if I see my children in imminent danger and yet I don't say anything because I'm too concerned I might hurt their feelings or offend them? All right, what kind of Christians are we when we withhold the truth from lost people who are in imminent and eternal danger because we're too concerned about hurting their feelings with the truth or offending them? The Apostle Paul didn't say to the church in Ephesus, speaking the truth in love, unless it hurts someone's feelings. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. No, he simply said, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Ephesians 4.15, as the church, we have to get over this idea that being a Christian means being nice to people at all costs, even at the expense of sharing the truth of the gospel and the love of Christ because we're worried it might offend them. Evangelist Vance Habner once said, it is not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We're not to see that they like it, but that they get it. Okay? Sharing the truth of the gospel, even when it's a hard truth. Right? It's the very, that is the very embodiment of love, and doing so should always take precedence over the feelings of those who need to hear it because the gospel is not just information, it is transformation in the lives of those who receive it, which means sharing the gospel must be the primary mission of the local church. Our focus must be the gospel. That's how we show his love. That's how we make disciples. That's how we care for others. That's how we represent Christ to this world. And as a byproduct of our gospel focus, we will surely be involved in all facets of society, politics, social activism, acts of compassion, cultural engagement. Yes, to all of that because of the gospel, not in spite of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unworn and unprayed for. Let's continue in the story, verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's a bad day. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As mentioned earlier, Ephesus was one of the leading centers of pagan worship in the ancient world. More specifically, it was a destination city for the worship of Artemis, the ancient Greek name translated as Diana in English. And the people of Ephesus loved her. Diana represented big business for them. In fact, their entire way of life revolved around this pagan goddess whose worship drove the local economy and defined the local culture. Again, uh, her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was actually four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. The, The sheer grandeur of this temple was known throughout the entire ancient world. John Calvin once wrote that the heart of every human being is an idol factory. Nowhere more than in Ephesus was this truly dark corner of the human heart celebrated in complete devotion to Diana. And yet, as verse 20 says, through this one local church, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, Prevail over what? Over the worship of Diana and the pagan culture she created in Ephesus. You see, the gospel is subversive. 
It's disruptive to your way of life when you're not following Christ, which was certainly evident in this city where magical incantations were revered so highly there were entire books devoted to them which were sold often at a very high price. And yet the people who were accepting the gospel message through the ministry of this one local church understood that in order to follow Christ, everything in their lives had to change. And so they were bringing these expensive books out into public and burning them in massive quantities. The phrase pieces of silver was probably referring to the Greek drachma, which represented a laborer's daily wage. So just to put that into perspective, at $15 an hour or $120 per day by today's standards, the 50,000 drachmas worth of books being burned would equal $6 million in today's currency. The gospel is subversive. It threatens your entire way of living by forcing you to confront the reality that you cannot follow Christ in this world at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You have to choose Jesus or the world. It's one or the other, which is why the church, the true church, is full of changed people because once you make the decision to follow Christ everything in your life is going to change if you're truly going to follow him it it has to at least according to Jesus it does which is quite different than what many of us have been raised to believe because according to cultural Christianity there's no real need to change in order to follow him You can live your life however you want to live. You can cling to this culture as tightly as you like. As long as you believe in Jesus, then you're a follower. Except that's not what Jesus said. Near the height of his popularity, Jesus could hardly go anywhere without being accompanied by massive crowds of people. And of course, he often used those opportunities to perform some truly amazing miracles, both for individuals and sometimes on a large scale for crowds of people as a whole because he loved them. He healed them. He delivered people from all kinds of oppression. He gave people dignity. He fed them and cared for them. And of course, he always taught them the truth about God and the kingdom of heaven. And then often he invited them to become his followers. And of course, that tends to be the way we characterize Jesus's ministry on earth. I think that's how most people today, certainly professing Christians, would probably describe his interaction with other people then, which is not wrong. It's just incomplete because there's a significant amount of scripture in the gospels that describes Jesus turning people away. And yet we don't talk about those stories because they don't really fit very well with the description of the Jesus that we want to follow today. Look, uh, everyone wants the Jesus that healed people. We all want the Jesus that set people free, right? Of course we do. Everyone can agree on the Jesus that accepted people who were otherwise rejected by society. The Jesus who was a friend to sinners and outcasts. And without a doubt, those are all fitting descriptions of the Jesus we profess to follow today. However, we aren't nearly as keen on the same Jesus who turned people away. The same Jesus who offended the majority of the people who ever heard him speak. The same Jesus who demanded a litany of conditions from those who would ever dare to follow him. That's the Jesus we aren't nearly as apt to talk about, to tell others about, or truly to even ponder for ourselves too long because that Jesus makes us uncomfortable. That Jesus is confrontational. That Jesus is demanding. That Jesus is downright offensive to most of the people who encounter him. Matthew, one of Jesus' own disciples, tells this story in his gospel account. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Jesus is ready to leave the crowd of people behind. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the son of man, I have nowhere to lay my head. In other words, right before Jesus walks away from the crowd, a man says to him, teacher, take me with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. To which Jesus replies, no, you won't. You won't. You like the idea of following me. 
You like the version of following me that you have in your mind, but the reality of actually following me is nothing like you think it is. So don't fool yourself. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. In other words, if you want to follow me, then someone else will have to go bury your own father because following me has to take precedence over even your own family obligations. How unbelievably inconsiderate. How unbelievably offensive. How unbelievably not nice. Why was Jesus so uncompromising with these people? Because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that their commitment was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. One of the uh, second generation followers of Jesus and the traveling companion of the apostle Paul, Luke, a doctor, records this story about Jesus in his gospel account. He says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. The phrase to hate, by the way, is an ancient Hebrew idiom. It meant to love less. So Jesus says to these people who are following him around, right? that's what he wants, right? Jesus came so that people would follow him, right? And yet he says to them, if you don't love me more, than your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. In fact, if you don't love me more than you love yourself, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, to bear a Roman cross in the first century Mediterranean world was to suffer the most horrific death imaginable. So Jesus says, if you're not willing to die to your own dreams, your own ideas about how life should be, your own desires apart from me, if you're not willing to let go of your own comfort and security and prosperity for my sake, then listen to me, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any of you who does not renounce all that he has. This is the cost of following Jesus. If you're not willing to risk everything, then you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25 through 33. In other words, if you're not willing to pay the price, you understand it's not about works. Nobody's earning their salvation here. This is about submission. It's about laying everything down before him. Jesus says, if you're not willing to love me more than you love your family, more than you love yourself, in fact, if you're not willing to die to yourself, if you're not willing to renounce anything else in your life by putting me above everything else in your life, every single other relationship and desire and dream and aspiration that you have apart from me, then you're never going to be able to follow me. So don't bother trying because you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, if I'm not everything to you, then you cannot be a good disciple or committed disciple or one of my best disciples. No, he says, if I'm not the number one priority in your life, this is Jesus talking. He says, you cannot be my disciple at all. In the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 6, after Jesus preaches a particularly difficult message about the commitment required to follow him, John says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, verse 66. Do you think Jesus was surprised by that? Do you think he was sorry that he said what he said? Do you think he's sorry that he offended so many people that caused all of those professing followers of his to walk away? Do you think he regretted it? Not at all. He also didn't go uh, chasing after them. Why not? Because Jesus knew exactly what they were going to do before he ever opened his mouth. 
because he knew what was in their hearts. And so knowing good and well that they would walk away from him when he told them the truth about himself, he told them anyway. It's not because he didn't love them. In fact, the entire reason he was willing to speak the truth to them as hard as he knew it would be for them to hear was precisely because he loved them. You see, he knew that as long as their hearts were set on other things more than they were on him, he knew their commitment to him would never last. And so as far as Jesus was concerned, they were far better off with the discomfort of having to wrestle with the truth than they were with the comfort of believing a lie. So he sent them away. He sent them away frustrated, angry, and you better believe offended. Because he knew what was in their hearts, he knew that their commitment to him was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. So he sent them away because, listen, Jesus doesn't call us to follow him on our terms. He calls us to follow him on his terms. And following him on his terms will, without exception, profoundly disrupt your life. In fact... If you're going to follow him, everything in your life has to change. And the beauty of that is when you have a local church full of changed people, it begins to affect the community, the culture around it, just like it did in Ephesus. It is an undeniable change and a quite disruptive one that given enough time and influence will actually begin to reshape the culture, as we'll see in our story. Author Craig Greenfield once said, Jesus is not respectable or nice in the sense of being placid or uncontroversial. He's not necessarily a good citizen. Jesus is wildly and prophetically subversive because beyond our affluent, comfortable suburbs, not all is right and something has to change. Let's finish the story for today. Verses 21 through 34. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There's danger, a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So people in mass, lost people are responding to the message of the gospel of Christ, confessing their sins, publicly burning as much as $6 million worth of books because those books no longer held any truth for their lives, no longer following the goddess Diana, instead choosing to follow the way, Jesus Christ, completely turning away from their former way of life, Uh, their former way of living, their former way of thinking, how they made their money, how they spent their money, how they worshiped, who they worshiped, the way they interacted with the culture around them. All of that was changing. And as a result, the culture itself was beginning to change. All because one local church that was focused on the gospel and full of changed people. And yet these changes were so subversive 
to business as usual in that culture. They were so disruptive to the lives of so many people that it began to stir up great tension within the city to the point that some of the local artisans and silversmiths who made their living on the back of the pagan worship of Diana stirred up a riot to try and get rid of Paul, to shut down the local church and to stop the spread of the gospel. So they dragged some of the members of the local church into the local theater, which would accommodate over uh, 20,000 people, by the way. It was massive. And verse 29 says that the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater. So this is a huge mass of people. The whole city, apart from those who had come to Christ, were there protesting. And it was so out of hand that verse 32 says most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. And then when Alexander stands up to speak to try and bring order out of the chaos, the crowd begins to shout for two solid hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the believers who were there having their lives threatened. You hear the gospel, you choose to follow Christ, so you give up everything, you abandon your former life and completely sell out to the local church where you begin telling people unashamedly about Jesus and his gospel. You've, you've risked everything for the sake of Christ, and it's working as people are coming to him in droves. And then one day out of the blue, some of the city's most prominent leaders and businessmen literally drag you out of your home into the local stadium where the entire city has gathered, and they're ready to kill you. It's natural to think these Christ followers must have been shocked by what was happening to them, and yet I don't believe they were surprised at all because Jesus made it quite clear to his disciples, being a part of my church necessarily means you will be rejected by the world. That's a simple reality of the life of a follower of Christ if you're living it like Jesus did. At times, this world, those who do not know him, will reject you simply because you do know him. And the, the struggle with that for many of us is the fact that often we want to be liked by people more than we want to be like Jesus. Author Bob Goff said, everybody wants to make a difference in the world. Only a few people want to be different than the world. And yet living like Jesus lived not only means you will be different than the world, you, you have to be. But it also means at times you will be rejected by the world because you've been changed by the gospel, which this world doesn't understand. And listen, it is basic human nature for people to reject that which they do not understand. That's why Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, John 15, 20. That's why he said, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me, Luke 10, 16. That's why he said, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Luke 6, 22. If your desire is to have an eternal impact on human souls outside of the church, then being a part of his church has to be more important to you than being accepted by this world. Being a part of the local church has to become a central part of your life because the idea that you can live like Jesus did and share the gospel with lost people like he did and yet at the same time be fully accepted into popular culture, that is an idea that is entirely incompatible with the reality of what unfolded in his own life, which is exactly what he said would unfold in our lives as well when we share the gospel with others, which is exactly what we see unfolding in the church at Ephesus when they shared the gospel with others. Because when you live like Jesus, you look like Jesus because your life reflects his. On the flip side, if the greater desire is to be accepted, liked by others more than you desire to be like him, uh, well, look, cultural Christianity will, will let you do that. But at some point, if you're going to actually follow Christ, then you're going to have to be okay with being disliked. In fact, even rejected at times. Right? By the rest of the world who does not yet know him. And so, I look, I'm, I'm sure by now, after all of that, you're getting the picture, right? The picture of what it looks like when you're a part of a local church that is focused on the gospel, 
full of changed people who are even willing to be rejected by the world if that's what it takes to tell lost people the truth about Christ. And I'm just telling you, it's a radical way to live your life. It's also radically different than the life of cultural Christians everywhere. And here's why it matters that you get this. Because this new year, you're going to meet new people and you're going to be given new opportunities to speak into the lives of those people because that's God's purpose for the local church, to be his agent through which the lost are transformed by the gospel. And so you understand, uh, Jesus didn't call you to make disciples of all nations. He didn't call you or anyone else to go off alone and make disciples. He called his church to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because you can't do it by yourself. You might think you can, but you won't get anywhere, whether you like it or not. You need the local church to fulfill the calling that he created you for, which means you're going to have to make a decision about the church, not just the universal body of believers that you're a part of, but the local church that you're a part of. Are you going to allow the local church to become a central part of your life and calling this year? Are you willing to be a part of something bigger than yourself, something that can only exist when changed people who are focused on the gospel come together at all costs to share that gospel in the culture around them? In other words, are you going to lay your own life down for the church? Because that's what Jesus did. And it's what this world needs. So desperately, a church willing to do whatever it takes to share the good news of the gospel with them. That's why it matters profoundly, not just how much you're a part of the church, but how much the church is a part of you. Because quite honestly, this world has had enough of cultural Christianity that changes no one and transforms nothing. What this world needs is more people in more local churches willing to risk it all for the sake of the gospel. And listen, it only takes one local church, even in a major city center, it only takes one local church committed to the gospel above everything else to change that entire city for the cause of Christ, just as we've seen in Ephesus. If you could just get a hold of this, the reality of what the church is, how it is supposed to function in a culture that doesn't understand it, and how your life will be changed when you're a part of it, when it becomes the biggest part of you. I'm telling you, you'll fall in love with the local church in a way that will not only transform you, but it will transform the culture around you as well, because that is exactly what this lost world desperately needs to experience. Not a church full of people who say they believe in Jesus Christ, but a church full of people who have been changed by Jesus Christ. Let's pray.